0: Have you ever had a situation in your life where your expectations or your hopes were not completely in line with the reality? After Stephanie and I got married, we went on our honeymoon to a place called St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and my parents had taken me to St. John when I was in high school, and while we were there the first time when I was there with my parents, my parents looked into taking a boat to the British Virgin Islands. They had these kind of day trips where you could go uh, to the British Virgin Islands, and they were supposed to be uh, even more beautiful than the U.S. Virgin Islands. Ultimately, they decided not to take us there because it was pretty expensive uh, for these day trips. So I thought to myself, if I ever go back again, I'd like to see the British Virgin Islands. So we decided to go to St. John. For our honeymoon and I decided this time I was going to pay the money to go to the British Virgin Islands. So I found a company that conducted day trips from St. John uh, from actually the very hotel we were staying at and this company had a five-star rating on TripAdvisor. So I was looking forward to this uh, day trip to the British Virgin Islands for months and I thought, I thought it would be the highlight of our trip. And I thought for the price that we had paid, it would be a very special cruise, maybe even a a once-in-a-lifetime type thing. I imagined a small, intimate boat with maybe a few other couples on the trip. I imagined them taking us to a secluded island with nothing but waves and palm trees. But my expectations weren't in line with reality. There were probably about 50 other people on the boat, and the entire day we were surrounded by crowds and crowds and crowds of people. The whole day felt like being at an amusement park. And then they took us to this cave to snorkel. And there were so many people that you could hardly get into this cave without getting kicked or splashed by somebody else. And there was this one guy in particular that was kind of flopping through the water on a pool noodle, flailing his feet and arms in the air. And he was flailing so much he almost kicked Stephanie right in the face. In short, the experience was not exactly what we were expecting. I thought it was going to be a very special and significant part of our trip. I thought it was going to be a highlight of our trip. But it turned out to be a lowlight of the trip. The Jews in Jesus' day, I think, also had expectations and hopes. And their expectations and hopes were centered around what the kingdom of God was would look like and how the messiah would behave the ancient jews had these notions of the kingdom of god and and the the glory days of when david reigned and solomon his son and how david and solomon and the other kings had done such great things and they imagined a day when the kingdom would be restored and god would return and overthrow their enemies and he would rule over all I imagine that they had read or heard passages in the Old Testament like Daniel chapter 7. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Jews of Jesus' day were expecting this kind of cataclysmic event where the heavens would be torn open and God would come back and his kingdom would be established. But that's not at all how the kingdom of God was ushered in. In short, the kingdom of God seemed very insignificant. It seemed very common, very insignificant. And there was this hiddenness to the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks to the crowd in parables. The kingdom of God is not understood or perceived by the masses. And even the select few who believe in him, they understand some aspects of the kingdom of God, but they still don't know, uh, there's still many questions unanswered. See, at this point in Jesus' life, much of his ministry is perplexing, and his purposes remain somewhat hidden. Now, as believers, as we read this story, we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus has come to the earth to die on the cross for our sins. But the people that Jesus encounters, they don't know that. They were wondering, what is Jesus trying to accomplish? Was he trying to gain a great following and become a great respected rabbi? Was he trying to get enough support so that when the time was right, he could triumphantly overthrow the Romans? Even Jesus' own brothers seemed to be wondering uh, about this same question as reported in John chapter 7. His brothers say, "Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the things see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, if you're trying to make a name for yourself, if you're trying to become a great rabbi, a great teacher, A great leader, then go show yourself to the world. But there's a hiddenness to what Jesus is doing. His purposes are failed. And then there's an ordinariness to the kingdom of God. The Pharisees speaking to Jesus, uh, speaking to Nicodemus, say, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophecy arises from Galilee. Jesus was from Galilee. The people in Jesus' homeland say, Is not this Jesus, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and and are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. We know Jesus. He made a table for us. We know Jesus. He's the son of Mary and Joseph. There's an ordinariness about him. He's not all that. He doesn't seem all that spectacular. The book of Isaiah describes the Messiah as someone without majesty or beauty. He was someone who probably fit right in with the crowd. So there's an ordinariness to the kingdom of God. There's also a smallness to the kingdom of God. Now it's true that Jesus was attracting many crowds, but this movement is pretty localized at this point. It's not as if people are coming from all over the known world to believe in Jesus. And even among those people who do believe in Jesus uh, or, or do come to Jesus, many of them don't believe in Jesus. As we looked at the parable of soils last week, we saw that three quarters of the work is wasted. Three quarters of the people who encounter Jesus are either openly antagonistic or apathetic. And so Jesus' disciples might have been asking the question why isn't the kingdom of God gaining more traction? Why hasn't every knee bowed and tongue confessed that Jesus is Lord? The kingdom of God, it seems insignificant, it seems hidden, it seems ordinary, and it seems small. But the kingdom of God appears significant, but it proves itself incredible. And we see this through three parables that Jesus gives that kind of confronts these three objections or three possible concerns about the kingdom of God. The hiddenness, the ordinariness, and the smallness of the kingdom of God. And the first it addresses the hiddenness of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, do you bring a lamp into your house only to put it under a basket or under a bed? Now who would do something like that? Nobody does that. Nobody goes out and buys a lamp and then puts something over that so they're no light can come out of the lamp but the kind of the goal of a lamp is to give light right it's interesting to note that the lamp in this sent in this sentence is the subject of the sentence in the esv it says something like "Do do you bring in a lamp but you is really not the subject of the sentence, the lamp is. So as James Edwards translated it, it's literally something like this. Does the lamp come in in order that it might be placed under a bowl? So the lamp is the subject of the sentence. And notice that it's not a lamp, it is the lamp. And these things probably indicate that the lamp that Jesus is referring to is to himself. That he, the Messiah, who was referred to in similar terms a couple times in the Old Testament is the lamp he is the light of the world and jesus says nothing is hidden except to be made manifest nor is anything secret except to come to light in other words jesus hasn't come to the world to stay hidden he's come to bring light to the world his goal isn't hiddenness this hiddenness is meant to reveal Jesus' purposes and ministry remain largely hidden, but that's not the goal. The goal is not hidden, Is at the right time. Jesus will demonstrate to the world his purposes in coming to the earth. And he'll show the world that his purpose was not simply to heal people or overthrow the Romans or become a great rabbi, but to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation under the earth. His purpose is hidden now, but it's hidden in order that one day, at the proper time, his purposes will be revealed. And for those who believe in him, they'll know even more and more about what the kingdom of God is like when Jesus reveals himself in the cross and resurrection. But for those who reject him now, the cross will become even more of a stumbling block. 1 Corinthians one twenty three says that the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So, for those who Believe in Jesus. The kingdom of God might be hidden now. God's purposes might be hidden for a time. But they're only hidden so that one day they might be revealed, And the whole world might see why God came to the earth in Jesus Christ. So this, there's a hiddenness. But the hiddenness has a purpose. In addition, you see the ordinariness of the kingdom of God. It may appear ordinary now. Jesus uses one of the most common and simplest illustrations, that of a person scattering a seed on the ground, to demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like. Scholar James Edwards says of this, A more banal comparison could not be imagined. The kingdom of God should be likened to something grand and glorious, to shimmering mountain peaks, crimson sunsets, the opulence of potentates, the lusty glory of a gladiator, but Jesus likens it to seeds. Though the kingdom of God seems rather ordinary, it experiences steady, sustained growth that's brought about by God. It says in the text, He sleeps of the farmer and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Notice how the farmer is greatly de-emphasized in this passage. Now in real life, a farmer has to do some things in order for a harvest to come forth. The farmer needs to work the soil, fertilize the soil, maybe supplement the water. But ultimately a farmer, especially in the time of Jesus, was very dependent upon a lot of things outside of his control. If the weather patterns didn't cooperate, a person could literally lose their family. They could be almost devastated. But while the farmer is sleeping, while he's going about his daily life, the plants are being nourished sun is beating down on them. They're converting that into energy. The rain is coming, nourishing them. And slowly, they're growing. In the same way, the kingdom of God may seem ordinary now, but while people are living their daily lives, the kingdom of God is slowly growing inside the hearts of those who believe in Christ. And the thing that's so interesting is that when you are growing plants... You could have the most fast growing, the fastest growing plant in the world and you could sit there and stare at the plant for hours and most likely you won't see it grow. But if you water it, put it out in the sun, then come back a couple days later, you might see that it's maybe doubled or tripled inside. But it's imperceptible to the naked eye. You can't see it growing, but slowly as you're going about your daily life, it's growing. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Now when we're talking about the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of God in two senses. There's an already aspect of the kingdom of God, and then there's a not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And he said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is the reign of God in the hearts of mankind. And so we see this kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing. The rule of God in men's hearts. Now one day Jesus will return and he will establish his kingdom and that will be unmistakable. And he'll establish a physical kingdom with a new heaven and a new earth. But the inbreaking of the kingdom of God established by Jesus is in people's hearts. If you're working on a project, let's say you're building a new deck. You get the materials that you need. You put the hours in that you need in order to put it together. And you... Spend this, you know, spend this time putting it together, and then, if you, then when you get to the end, you have something to show for it. You can see there wasn't a deck there, and now there's a deck. The kingdom of God is a little bit different. You can't always see the results. You can't always see the kingdom of God. I mean, you can see the fruit and see evidence that a person has entered into the kingdom of God. But you can't directly see the working of the kingdom of God like you see a physical project being completed. And that can be tricky when you're doing ministry and serving others because you, sometimes you don't know if your efforts are achieving something. You don't know if your efforts are in vain. But based on this passage, we can be assured that while we go about our everyday lives, God is growing and increasing His kingdom. So there's an ordinariness but through that ordinariness, God is increasing his kingdom. Finally, G- Jesus' kingdom appears to be small. But Jesus says that it grows into something incredible. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed. Now some people look at this and say, Here it is, Jesus made a mistake. He calls the mustard seed the smallest of seeds. Now the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed on the earth. The, Jesus wasn't aware that the orchid flower actually has smaller seeds. He wasn't aware that it was this specific genus of orchid that had these smaller seeds, that had the smallest seeds. Jesus isn't trying to make a statement about the classification of seeds. He's not trying to make a scientific statement. He's using an everyday illustration, everyday example, something that was familiar to the people, which was one of the smallest seeds that they might have encountered. And he, he uses it to demonstrate a point about the kingdom of God. It starts small, but it becomes incredible. The mustard plant is a type of shrub that's an annual, meaning that it only lives for one year. But even though the mustard seed is small, it becomes quite, a quite large plant. It can reach 3 to 12 feet, and the text says that it becomes so large that the birds can come and make nests in the mustard shrub. A number of times in the Old Testament, the image of birds nesting was a picture of Gentiles becoming a part of God's chosen people. This may have been Jesus' point, that the mustard seed that started with Israel, and it started so small, will one day become so large that the birds, that is the Gentiles, people from other nations, would come and take part in what God is doing in the world and become a part of the family of God. That is, while the kingdom of God appears small now, it's going to become something very incredible. So small, but it's going to become something incredible. The kingdom of God may appear insignificant, but it proves itself incredible. I think the same things that apply to God's kingdom can also apply to God's people, as the kingdom of God is something that's uh, in the present among God's people, it happens in the hearts of God's people. In other words. I think we can also say that God's people appear insignificant. But they prove themselves incredible. And when I talk about say incredible, I'm not talking about being better than everybody else or being successful by worldly standards, but they prove themselves incredible in that they prove themselves that through Christ, they have significance. Through Christ, they can make a difference. Through Christ, they can produce fruit for the kingdom of God. God's people, like the kingdom of God, are hidden. Scriptures tell us that believers in Jesus live in a world, uh, and even in the church among unbelievers. Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, in the parable of the weeds, that God allows both believers and unbelievers to exist together. Only He can tell the difference. Believers in Jesus are often ordinary. They often don't have the best religious background. They don't have the most amount of money. Sometimes has come from broken families. They don't have all the skills. They don't have all the qualifications. Believers are small in numbers. If you go to the largest church in the area, you know, and compare it to the number of people who are lost, the number of believers is minuscule. And you, go to, you think about the Pentecost together that we went to, or that some of us went to. And you think about the fact that the sabers have that building almost filled up, or pretty filled up, night in and night out, every, you know, at however many days. And then they have an event to bring Christians together. They could, probably couldn't even fill up a quarter of the state. Maybe a quarter. There's a smallness to the people of God. Some of us, maybe we come from families where we're the only ones who are believers and we feel like we're the only ones in the family of God. Well, here's the encouragement that I'd like to give us, leave with you today. If you're a believer in Jesus, God is doing incredible things among you. God is slowly but steadily growing His kingdom and adding a great multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will worship Him. That God is doing that, even while we're going about our daily business, even when we're sleeping, God is increasing His kingdom. And also, if you're a believer in Jesus, there's another encouragement. God is doing great things in you. He's slowly, but consistently, working in your heart to create something incredible. To create something beautiful for His glory. There's a story about a man who once bought a home and it had a tree in the backyard. He bought it in the wintertime and it was, there was really nothing special about this tree. But when spring came, the tree grew leaves and had tiny pink buds. The man thought to himself, how wonderful, now I have a flower tree and I'll enjoy these beautiful flowers all summer. But before he had time to enjoy the flowers, the wind began to blow and soon all the petals were strewn on the earth. What a messy fall. This tree isn't any use after all. The, tree, the summer passed, and one day the man noticed the tree was full of green fruit the size of large nuts. He picked a large one and took a bite. Ah! He cried. He threw it to the ground. What a horrible tra- taste. This tree is worthless. Its flowers are so fragile, the wind blows them away. And its fruit is terrible and bitter. The winter comes, I'm gonna cut it down. The tree took no notice of the man and continued to draw water from the ground and warmth from the sun. And in late fall, it produced crisp red apples for all. The time. God's people appear insignificant. They prove themselves. I'd like to close by reading something called The Psalm of a Gardener by a man named Joseph Bailey. He writes, Lord of the compost heap, you take garbage and turn it into soil, good soil, for seeds to root and grow with wildest increase, flowers to bloom with brilliant beauty. Take all the garbage of my life, Lord of the compost heap, turn it into soil, good soil, and then plant seeds to bring forth fruit and beauty and perfusion. God's people appear insignificant prove themselves